It's Monday, February 13th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. You've heard of the slow food movement and the slow news movement. Now we are witnessing the consequences of the slow balloon movement. Well, maybe not balloons, but maybe some balloons. Objects, definitely objects. They seem to be balloons. And the U.S. has scrambled the fleet to turn the flotilla into flotsam. Well, today's object was shot down over northern Lake Huron. And yesterday, one was shot down over Canada's Yukon Territory. And on Friday, one was shot down off the coast of Alaska. What are these things? Where do they come from? Are there more of them? Are they a match for an F-22 Raptor? Of all these questions, only the last one has a firm answer, as indicated by NSC spokesman John Kirby. We're calling this an object because that's the best description we have right now. Uh, We do not know who owns it. It is an object, and the reason we're finding so many of them is that we've now asked our tools to look. Usually the NORAD defense system ignores things going this slowly, but after the big balloon of last week took off and with it our national attention, we began to look for littler balloons or objects. Still sending the Raptors or the F-35 Lightning to down them. Now, I'd have gone, not with those fighter jets, but um, a steady stream of carnival water into a clown's mouth. Because you see, under those circumstances, there is a winner every time, every time. But the military knows better than me. And not just our military, the Canadians are monitoring and downing their own visitors from above. Though in the case of the even-keeled Canadians, their levitating interlopers seem to kind of want to blend into the Canadian culture. It represented a reasonable threat to civilian aircraft. So I gave the order to take it down. That was Prime Minister Justin Trudeau on the reasonableness of the threat. Hovering above us are many questions and many more objects. Were they spycraft? Do they say, get well, Jennifer? Were they taken down before the Alvarado family learned of their baby's gender? Do we float our own balloons over the Chinese? If these are actual space creatures, will the Chinese unite with us to battle them? Is this a ploy to get us to ignore TikTok? All good questions. All we know at this point is that they are objects, or were, before a $125 million jet blasted them back to wherever they came from, be it China, Nebula 4, or... In the Twilight Zone. On the show today, too many celebrities ruin the beer. But first, the science and practice of teaching kids to learn has been a moving target for years. One of the best podcasts of 2022 sold a story was about the challenges of teaching kids to read and the basic fact that we've got it so wrong for so long. Emily Hanford, who is the reporter behind Sold a Story, joins me next. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. 
because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where uh, it got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort, and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. In the best narrative podcast of 2022, no one was murdered, no one joined a cult, the CIA didn't write a hair metal song. Seriously, that actually really didn't happen in any podcast. Tom Hanks did not cut anyone from a miniseries. The only thing that happened was that our society failed its children in terms of, I'd say, its most fundamental educational obligation. Sold a story as a podcast from APM, and host and reporter Emily Hanford has created a podcast with a tagline that might go something like this for the last 40 years in America, we've been teaching reading exactly incorrectly and the consequences are enormous. Emily, welcome to The Gist. Thank you. Happy to be here. Before I want to get into the details of Soul to Story, tell me a little bit about your reporting background and the issue of literacy or education. How long have you been on this beat? So I started reporting on education when my older kid was eight and my younger kid was five. So they're they're in college and beyond now. And I really didn't think much about it. My kids learned to read pretty easily. I think I sort of assumed what I think a lot of people assume is that reading just kind of happens with enough exposure to books and a little bit of instruction. And then, I don't know, it was like 2016, actually, I was interviewing college students and college professors in these remedial reading classes. And I was uh, meeting these college students who couldn't read very well. And I was so uh, just astonished by it and particularly astonished by sort of the, the things that they did to try to get through school without really being able to read. I started looking at kids who have reading disabilities, dyslexia. I did some reporting on that, but then I realized the problem is actually bigger than that. Dyslexia mm -hmm. is sort of the tip of the iceberg. And what's really going on is that most kids aren't really being taught how to read in school. And kids with dyslexia are the worst off when that happens. Like they really get harmed. But lots of kids are getting harmed because it turns out that most of us don't actually learn to read that easily. It doesn't just happen with exposure to books. So for years now, I've been stuck on this one topic and I can't get off it. Reading and how people learn to do it and how it's taught and why there's such a disconnect between the two. So I want to go back. Um, and what makes Sold a Story an excellent story and not just a series of policy prescriptions or putting your finger on um, educational missteps is that it has characters, it has stakes, it even has that infuriating thing where great intentions turn bad. So let's talk about 
and this is uh, early on in one of your episodes, the well-intentioned New Zealand reading researchers, what were they finding and what were they even looking to find? So we've been fighting about reading for a long time. And the fascinating thing is that as human beings, we haven't been actually reading for that long. Like we just kind of invented this whole written language thing a few thousand years ago, which was kind of recently in the course of human history. So our brains really aren't sort of designed to do it. We can get, we can become really good readers, but we're not born to do it. So anyway, your question was about New Zealand in the 1960s. And so there was this theory that was proposed by this woman in New Zealand and by someone here in the United States. And the basic idea with good intentions um, was that the goal of reading is comprehending what you read. So let's get to the good part. Let's make sure that from the very beginning, kids are focused on the meaning of what they're reading. And so it was sort of generally known as this thing called whole language. And it, it there's a lot of definitions of that term, but it's sort of a more like, let's think of the whole, not the parts. Also holistic, it sort of has both of those kinds of meanings. Mm-hmm. Very associated with a kind of learning by doing sort of approach. That's good. There's a lot of great things about that. Let kids play, let kids explore. It's a lot of what I think a lot of parents want for their kids in school. That actually became to be much scrutinized. Um, There was some good research coming out about the importance of sounding out words and learning the written language. And so whole language really kind of by the 90s and early 2000s, there had been a lot of research, there'd been some big government reports about the importance of phonics. So whole language really kind of went away. It was founded upon a faulty theory. Yeah. My mom was an elementary school teacher and uh, sort of a gimlet-eyed one at that. And she (laughs) always believed in phonics. And she would call whole language the idea that kids would somehow catch reading, like one might catch a cold. Just throw a (laughs) lot of books and a nook. Oh my God, all the nooks and the cozy places to read. And the uh, idea of that you could walk into the book um, good, good night moon. And a lot of bowls of mush would be there. And somehow you just catch it like magic. That was sort of the idea behind whole reading. She hated it. Turns out she was right. It was discredited, but go ahead. I will tell you a detail about my mother. Uh She was one of the first whole language teachers back in the early 1960s. A lot of this sort of took root in San Diego and she was a part of it and she was doing it. And she always had a little feeling in the pit of her stomach, like, am I really teaching these kids how to read? And many teachers had that feeling. So from the spectrum of like your mom, who kind of really sounds like knew what she was doing and knew something about how to teach kids to read to teachers that actually over time, we kind of sent them out into the classroom and they really weren't prepared to do this. They didn't get much instruction in how to teach kids to read. They didn't learn about phonics. They got into the classroom and they were like, so anyway, it all gets down to the very beginning And there's this, like, it turns out that there's this thing (laughs) that needs to, like, get uh, revealed, this, like, sort of secret that needs to be revealed for kids, uh, that, like, these words are the spelling of these words. You need to understand this. There's something about the way that these words sound. There are letters and different combinations that represent these sounds. It's a code. Um, Anyway. This whole language idea was pretty much discredited by the late 90s, early 2000s, and we spent Uh, billions of dollars in the early 2000s trying to kind of right this ship. And Sold a Story is sort of about the fact that that didn't really quite work. Uh, That whole language got replaced by this other thing called balanced literacy, which sounds really good. And again, not it's not like everything with balanced literacy is wrong. And there's lots of definitions about it. But what I show in Sold a Story 
is that balanced literacy too is based on, on an idea about how people learn to read. And it's the same basic idea at the core of whole language. So what balanced literacy did is said, okay, we'll add some phonics. Fine. You proved it. We got to do that. Let's teach some ki- the kids some things about letters and sounds. Let's not you know, completely ignore that. But let's remember you, there's all these other ways that you can identify the words. You don't have to sound them out. You can also do these other things like look at the first letter, think of a word that makes sense, look at the picture. And it turns out that all those other strategies can actually get in the way of the stuff that we needs to go on in our brain for us to actually learn all those written words and start to store them in our brain and do the, and get this thing that it turns out is key to being a good reader, which is you and I, if you're a good reader, you actually know like thousands, tens of thousands of words like instantly. Uh, people can do experiments. They can like flash words in front of your eyes and you don't even consciously know that you saw that word, but they can show with these little prompts about like what comes after or whatever that you actually like saw that word and you registered it. So this is all happening in like split second, like like before consciousness, you are identifying words. But the reason you and I are good at identifying those words is because at some point when we were little or somewhere along the way, when we encountered the word for the first time, like a word like gist, that's actually a perfect example. The word people, gist. People say gist to me. Gist. I saw, Depending on the audience, I'll say it's the gist. And then I will say G-I-S-T. <laughs> Exactly. So that's a perfect example of the kind of word that people, well, so to make my first point, you and I are good readers and everyone's a good reader because at some point you sounded out the word laboriously, slowly. You linked the pronunciation of word with the spelling and the meaning in your mind. And those things got linked and then it kind of gets stored in your memory, not like a picture. You're not really memorizing it, but you have immediate access to it Mm -hmm. because you successfully sounded it out. And then kids get into middle school, high school, or adulthood, and we all have the embarrassing moments, like something like gist. You're like, wait, gist? What? Gist? I thought it was gist. <laughs> and then you have that aha moment. You're like, oh, gist. Right. See the gist? You're and not going to so, make that mistake again. <laughs> and it's so hard because a uh, someone who teach the plural of someone who teaches you yoga, they would be called what? Oh, are they yogis? Right. So that's a G-I-S <laughs> where it's pronounced totally differently. What exactly. the hell is the rule? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and this is, I have to say, this is important because because of that, that is actually one of the well-intentioned reasons that people gave up on it. It's like, this is so hard. English is so hard. How can we teach this to a six-year-old? Uh, so let's do it a different way. And that's, I think that's a crux of the interest, what makes your series interesting is that at some point, the well-intentioned gave way, I think, to a mindset that was either engaged in massive confirmation bias or something worse or something motivated by money. They just refused to see the data. And so when do you think, or would you put your finger on it and say that at some point, it became less a question of people trying to muddle their way through something complicated and more a question of malpractice. Yeah, you know, as a reporter, I'm really careful about uh, what I say on that one. Um, and I, I, but I do, here's, here's what I think. I think that when we started this reporting, we sort of thought that we were more going to find out, oh, it's all about the money or, oh, you know, this was not I'm not so sure we thought we were going to find people intentionally hurting children. I don't I don't think anyone's intentionally hurting children. I think the bigger force here, which is look around in our world, I think this is a very powerful force. It's more about 
once you get invested in something, once you believe in something, it's very hard to unbelieve it. It's very hard to uninvest in it. If you're also making money off of it, that's another reason to keep believing it, right? When you've got a certain kind of skin in the game of something, it there, there, there are reasons many of us don't want to give up our beliefs and you can start to knock down, here are the reasons. But one can be because your professional reputation has been based on it. You're making a living off of it. But just look at our world. I mean, I think that's one of the things that is fascinating about this topic is that it is a lens into why people believe what they believe and why it's so difficult to give up your beliefs. And one of the most moving things to me, of course, is the teachers themselves. And when teachers the teachers hear about this, it's super hard because one of the things they they tell me they have to deal with right away is sort of guilt and shame. Right. And, you know, that they that they really might not have given kids what they needed and in some cases maybe even harmed kids, maybe even made it harder for some kids to learn how to read. Sure. But we also need our institutions to step in and say something like, well, okay, we need to change our course. So two of the institutions implicated in the series are politics, politicians, what the state legislatures decided in terms of curriculum, but also teachers' colleges. We haven't mentioned the name Lucy Calkins. She's an education professor. She's one of the most prominent, uh, perhaps the most prominent reading teacher. And she, at Columbia University Teachers College, and with the support of that institution, got it wrong and got it wrong in a big way and a consequential way all this time. And so therefore, what? Any reforms? Any soul searching? Yes. In the case of Lucy Hawkins, yes. I think that uh, this reporting and that I've been doing for several years and the attention that this is getting because there are so many people out there, parents, teachers, the researchers who've been doing the research who know this, who know that there's been something wrong for a long time. Lucy Hawkins has um, learned about that in the last few years and said she made a mistake. She said that she didn't get that part right. And she is now editing her curriculum and selling a new one. So she is uh, she's selling something new and she's she's changed it because she said she didn't have it right. Mm-hmm. This is an accountability tale. At the end of the day, you're right. This is accountability. The final episode in this is called The Reckoning. And I yeah. think that is what is happening right now. There is a reckoning going on and there are many people that need to look at what they did or didn't do um, over time. One of the most fascinating things about the series is the political valence of where um, everyone came down on what was the best method. And this either balanced approach or whole language that got coded as left, um, you know, it was around Clinton era. So maybe not what the left is today, but, but liberal progressive, whereas the phonics approach either by default or some, maybe having something to do with what its opponents would describe as the roteness of it that got coded as more right, um, associated with the Bush administration, certainly. And that created a problem that created an obstacle of change because the question wasn't really, well, what's the best way to teach kids to read? The question sort of became, which side are you on, right? Yes, I would say for sure. I mean, in this, you know, you can find the partisan politics in you know, phonics. Phonics has had this kind of traditional back to basics rote kind of reputation for a long time. So it's been associated with the right for a while. But 
it's really, it's, it's, that's really not what's up here. I mean, I think some people are still stuck in their mind that this is like a right wing thing. And it just absolutely isn't. I mean, I asked some of the scientists, like, can I just ask about your politics here? And they're like, I'm the most liberal person you'll, you know, you're going to find around here. But I'm telling you that we know these things about reading and how it works and what kids need to learn. This is not right, left or anything. This is just scientific evidence. So the states that have passed what are sometimes branded science of reading laws, as you said, the scientists, which is to say an emphasis on phonics, here are the states that have the most, I guess you would say, rigorous and earliest adoption of the science of reading laws. Alabama, Kentucky, Mississippi, North Carolina, Tennessee, Alaska, Arkansas. So these are red states. And the states that aren't on this list at all, California got on board in uh, 2013, but New York's not there. New Jersey's not there. Connecticut is. So still though, you can really make the point, and you did make the point, that the re- and this is in a uh, public media podcast, that the Republicans really got it right. The uh, Democratic administration really got it wrong. The reckoning happened as led by more Republican states. And this was This scrambles your assumptions because you can't always default to um, the the red-blue team colors and trying to figure out these actual claims. 100%. There's some strange bedfellows on this one. (laughs) Yeah. Do you think schools of education and education professors have reckoned with the mistake that you've documented? Um, And should we be inspired that they'll be able to course correct uh, so that more or other kinds of mistakes aren't made? I mean, some of them. There's, you know, because within schools of education, there are people who've known this stuff all along. (laughs) They've said it to me like I was the person no one wanted to have lunch with, you know, Mm -hmm. like I know this research. So it depends on who you're talking about. It depends on what school there really are. But they were seen as apostates. I wonder if they still are. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, I I do, I I think a lot of people are changing their mind. I do think as a group, I think one of the groups of people that this is hardest to change the minds with are faculty and schools of education for some of the reasons we talked about before, which is those people have like their professional reputations at stake here. I think most teachers in schools Uh, When you start explaining some of this stuff to them and telling them about it, many of them, not all, accept it pretty readily, sometimes with some defensiveness at first, because like I said, you got to deal with, whoa, why didn't I know this? Uh, They see the faces of the children. They didn't help. They remember their names. The teachers will say the names to me. I remember X and Y and Z. But I do, I, do, I do think that this is writ large. I think schools of education and faculty within schools of education are having some of the hardest time with this. The name of the podcast, the full name is Sold a Story, How Teaching Kids to Read Went So Wrong. The reporter, the host of that podcast, Emily Hanford, she's one of those rare people who has true subject matter expertise and is also a trained and excellent audio communicator. It's a rare combination and it's what makes Soul to Story one of the best, if not the best, narrative podcasts of last year. Emily, thanks so much. Thank you. I really appreciate it. It's fun to be here. And now the spiel. Did you see the one where the guy from The Thing played his old role, but it was for uh, like some cell phone or maybe a detergent? Anyway, you know the one. 
It was pretty funny. I don't know. I kind of miss the Clydesdales. And that's what $7 million got you if you were a company so daring as to play in advertising's richest sandbox, the Super Bowl. The price has gotten so expensive that gigantic billion-dollar multinational corporations had to go halvesies with Netflix and electric vehicle maker GMC teaming up in the person of Will Ferrell. And then there was one for Coors versus Miller Lite. Oh no, it was really Blue Moon. Surprising, even though all three brands are owned by the same conglomerate, Molson Coors. But rather go through all the ads and what worked and what didn't, like on the real internet, in real life, wouldn't Binky Dad be torn apart like Bean Dad and Tan Mom before him? Instead of doing that, I want to pause to consider celebrity, the entire notion of celebrity. And I had to pause because that was the only way to avoid all the celebrities. Celebrities selling out. Celebrities ironically distancing themselves from selling out. Celebrities celebrating their greatest hits. Celebrities leveraging the one thing you know about them. Celebrities upping their fee by including a family member. When the sellout goes well, Steve Martin and Ben Stiller do a funny ad. When the family member is known and welcome, oh look, it's J-Lo as a button to a pretty good Ben Affleck commercial. When things don't go so well, Danny Bride's throwing detergent or something at people, and you forgive him because really, you can't quite place the guy in the first place. Call me Downey McBride. He seems to acknowledge selling out. That's fine. Maya Rudolph appeared in an Eminem spoof commercial about clams. The joke being that that would sure make a disgusting candy, but the question being, how does that position your actual candy as appealing in any way? I think by this point, Eminem may have mistook ire on Fox News, including from the panel of Gutfeld, another Super Bowl advertisee, for actual interest from America. So right now, I think it's true there really was a fake controversy over Green's footwear, but Eminem's real solution was Maya Rudolph as a fake spokesperson offered up by a real company really paying $7 million to fake advertise clam candy. It's a candy. It's not the plot of a Terrence Malick movie. I can't even follow this. It's not supposed to be challenging. It's not even a challenging candy like something with Carmel would be. The oddest celebrity orgy was for Michelob Ultra. Well, we're waiting. Here we had Serena Williams, really famous, and Brian Cox, you know him, from Succession, doing a spoof of Caddyshack. So far, so good. All of those things have elements of the iconic. Bill Murray's character, played by Tony Romo in this ad, weird, but he's ubiquitous to NFL fans. There's soccer star Alex Morgan. I bet you sliced it into the woods. So we're talking celebs with huge followings or who are at least huge in quite popular sports. Also in there, in the end, basketball player Jimmy Butler, who no one will be able to place because he's not wearing a Miami Heat jersey and a scowl. He is miscast in this ad as someone who ever smiles. Next to him is WNBA player Nika Aguamike, who's certainly great at basketball, but has 144,000 Instagram followers. Jimmy Butler, Alex Morgan, 9.8, 7.8 million respectively. And the final shot of the extended Caddyshack homage is of a ginger-haired referee standing over the hole, ready to raise his hands, just as Brian Doyle Murray did in the original. They're just based on the angle and how the camera lingered on him and the fact that he was shown 
driving some sort of Michelob truck before. I knew this guy had to be a celebrity, but I had no idea who he was. It was a little off-putting. Wait, they think I should know this guy? Why don't I know this guy? So it's more like a punchline that clearly does not land as opposed to dialogue you didn't know was intended to be funny in the first place. Turns out it was boxer Canelo Alvarez, who's very popular in Mexico, still pretty popular here. But the overall impact was forced celebrity delight overload. By the end of the Super Bowl, this was happening to me time and time again. Wait, who was that? Wait, who was that? Wait, who's with Bradley Cooper? Was that Gloria Steinem? Was that Barbara Streisand? Hi, how can I help you? Yeah, I don't like the way you look. (laughs) Does G-Mobile really have a 5G? America's largest 5G network. Try it again. Oh my God, you look like a... No, it was his mom. And they said so, but Super Bowl parties are loud and I missed it. And I didn't know if they were going for the celeb casting thing. Streisand would have been kind of a logical casting choice as the mom to Bradley Cooper, the star who was born to the star who was born. And then there were the guys in the grocery. I know, were someone famous? I saw the Hulu show, The Bear. I think he's one of them. But that guy wouldn't be in an ad as a celebrity. And this is a guy from the Wu-Tang Clan. And what the hell is going on here? Celebrities are supposed to cut through. They're human brands. Their faces communicate a message and a story, or at least some meaning. But celebrity has fractured, and it's hard to even know who these people are. The Michelob Ultra ad, by the way, was particularly thirsty, if you will, if you read the backstory about how it wasn't a quasi-successful silly ad. It was a cause. Headline in Forbes, on Women's Equality Day, Michelob Ultra commits $100 million to women's sports. According to People Magazine, it's not the beer that keeps 23-time Grand Slam champion Serena Williams coming back to partner with Michelob year after year. It is the company's commitment to gender equality in sports. Quote, when we first talked about a relationship, I honestly couldn't believe all that they were doing, Williams says. She explains how this year's golf-themed commercial has equal representation of female and male athletes, which she says is a really big deal for the Super Bowl and a Super Bowl commercial. Also, Williams referenced her pride in the $100 million commitment that Michelob Ultra made in 2021 to increase women's visibility in sports. Whoa! Hundred million. That is a major bequest. What did they fund a foundation, a scholarship program? Let's check the press release. Michelob Ultra commits a hundred million dollars to support gender equality in sports. Here are the three bullet points. Dedicating 50% of its lifestyle media inventory to content that promotes women's sports by 2025. Representing female and male athletes equally in all advertising creative moving forward and ensuring equal representation of female and male athletes on their influencer roster. The $100 million is announcing that they're going to advertise beer to women who drink beer. That's where the $100 million is going. Ad buys. The ads will have female athletes in them. They're also sponsoring a WNBA arena. Michelob Ultra's vice president of marketing, Ricardo Marquez, notes that Michelob Ultra, with its mere 95 calories and low, low 2.6 carbs, is already the number one beer among women drinkers. So 
They want more women to drink their beer, and women seem to want to drink their beer because it's low-cal and low-carb, and women have got to watch their weight. I mean, we all do, but it's obvious why light beer and women and athletes go together. This isn't a charity or a donation or any type of sacrifice. It's strategic marketing. It's not evil, unless you think alcohol's a sin or capitalism's a crime. And yeah, sure, go ahead, issue a press release framing as an act of feminism what really is a smart play for an untapped, if you will, beer drinking demographic. They're just Virginia Slims, but for beer. Even the cans are longer and skinnier than regular beer cans. Every thrust of the engine of capitalism must now be recast as a blow for equality. I get it. It's better than ignoring women consumers. It's a lot worse than the actual gender equality the press release spoke of. You know what my favorite Super Bowl commercial was? It featured gender equality, though I didn't realize it. It featured a celebrity, though I didn't realize that. It featured a light beer, which I did realize, which was a big part of why I thought it was one of the best commercials. Because you remember the product. A young guy and his young wife or girlfriend hold Bud Lights as they dance with each other while on hold with customer service. Later found out the guy was Miles Teller, who's likable, and the woman is his wife, Kelly Sperry. The commercial seems so unforced, so genuine, something that you and your partner have done while waiting on hold. And if you had a Bud Light available, well, why not? No smash cut to Teller's Top Gun co-star Tom. No see what I did there neediness. No callback to a past role or attempt at ironic distancing to the task at hand. Two seemingly happy people in muted colors pleasantly enjoying each other's company. I would count that as $7 million well spent. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the Gist's producer, and Joel Patterson's the Gist's senior producer. Michelle Pesca is COO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash the Gist. Oomperu, jeeperu, dooperu, and thanks for listening. What does the world really want? Clams.